Children's well. church. Children's, yeah, children can be dismissed for children's church. And, and, and I appreciate the compliment, but trust me, if God doesn't show up in this pulpit, friend, I don't really have a whole lot to say. I mean, it wasn't me. It never is me, honestly. And, and you guys ought to know that. When we're out here just chit-chatting, I, I, I struggle for words to say I'm not a communicator. I'm really not, you know. And my kids even said, Dad, when you get in the pulpit, you turn into a different person. I'm like, well, it's not me, guys. It's, and that's what I'm going to be talking about, actually, this morning. Because I, I want to start out by saying that if it sounds like we're boasting, so when I say we, CVAG, Pentecostalism, our church, full gospel, whatever we're saying, we're not bragging on us or our church. We're bragging on the presence of the Holy Spirit and, and God's anointing and God's unction of his spirit. And it's all about Jesus. Listen, the, the Bible, when you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, everything in it all points to Jesus. It's all about him. And in the end, it's going to all be about Jesus as well. So last week, I made a statement. I said, this community didn't need another church. And I had been in the community for almost a decade before we planted this church, and it really didn't need another church. There are plenty of churches around the area. And, and I said I wasn't trying to judge anybody or condemn anybody or throw stones at anybody, but I was very involved in ministry for 10 years. And honestly, I didn't see the churches being spirit-led. All right? And I made the statement, God, I believe, planted this church because he wanted a spirit filled, spirit-led church. Now, I want to elaborate a little bit on that because I, I need to correct that statement. God planted this church because he wanted a Holy Spirit filled and a Holy Spirit-led ministry. Because you can be spirit-led, only it's not the Holy Spirit that's leading you. Now, my job as a, as a senior pastor or the, the overseer of this fellowship, the, the Bible says, submit to those that have authority over you in the Spirit, for they watch for your souls as those that must give an account. So it's a responsibility that you carry as a pastor, and part of that responsibility is to the best of your ability to discern what Spirit is working in the ministry. You know, and I attempt to do that because sometimes we, we believe that we're, we're full gospel or we're Pentecost or whatever you want to call it, and we believe that we're being led by the Spirit. And, and I've had people, they felt like the Holy Spirit was leading them to do something or to say something, and I, I have never required anybody to, like, run that past me. I have a pastor Joel. It just kind of somehow it just, somebody came to me one day and said, I feel like the Lord is saying this and I'm listening to him. And then it sort of just became a pattern with people. I guess they saw that. And so people will come up to me and they say, well, I think the Lord is this or that. And my job is to try to discern, is that just their emotions? Because sometimes it's not the spirit at all and, and it's nothing wrong with it. I am glad to see people with zeal and excited and 
But I, but I have to try to discern, is, is that really the Holy Spirit? Or is that this? They're caught up in the emotions. They feel like, I, I just want to do something. And I'm like, yes, praise God, I'm glad you want to do something. But I have to say, well, you know, I, I, I really think that's for you, you know. I, I may not say that, but I discern that, and I'm like, okay, well. And then sometimes some, someone will, will come up, and, and I realize respectfully that there's a selfish motive behind this. They're looking for recognition or notoriety of some type. They, they may even be looking for a following. They're trying to, they, they have some hidden agenda, you know, and my spirit's like, I just, I just don't know. I, this, that doesn't seem like the Holy Spirit to me. There's other times that somebody may come up with that, and I'm like, that is a spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. And it is trying to work through an unyielded vessel, an innocent vessel. They, they really believe the Holy Spirit is moving them, but it's not the Holy Spirit. And, and, and sometimes I've had people come up to me and they, they feel like the Holy Spirit is telling them something. And I know without question that it's not the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's an evil spirit. And it is, in fact, working through a yielded vessel. Because sometimes, church, the Jezebel spirit will enter in and it will rest up on someone and they yield themselves to that spirit. And there was a, there was a good ba book written years ago. In fact, I had our staff and our intercessory prayer team read that book and it's called Unmasking the Jezebel Spirit by, I think it was Ron Paul Jackson or something like that. And, and I didn't agree with everything in the book, but there was some amazing comparison some realities in there that I have seen in ministry over the years, and I'm like, boy, he nailed that. I have seen that operate. So here's the thing. We want to be Holy Spirit-led, Holy Spirit-filled, and it's my job to try to discern if that's God or not. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, plural, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, with that said, do I get it right 100% of the time? And the answer is absolutely not. I'm human. I can err. There, there have been times that I believe the Holy Spirit wanted to move, and I didn't bear witness with it, and I just I didn't give an opportunity for that. And, and I've had some people get very upset with me because they were convinced, and it, it, maybe it was the Holy Spirit. Maybe, in fact, I guess at times it was, and I just missed it. And I've had people, I mean, you can get it right 99 times, but that one time they're like, you, you quenched the Spirit. And I mean, they really get upset about that. And I, what can I do? I'm sorry. I, I repent. I, I missed it, you know, and when we move on. We don't break fellowship over that. We shouldn't. Come on, if we're mature believers, we shouldn't break fellowship over that. And then there's been times that someone come up, and I just believe that was the Holy Spirit, and I maybe hand them a microphone, and I say, I think that's for the body. Share it for them. And in about five seconds out of their mouth, I'm like, oh, boy, that, that's not the Spirit, you know. That one got past me. So I don't get it right 100% of the time. I've had men in this pulpit that I've invited to come and speak. And some of the things they shared, I'm like, oh, my Lord. And I rarely would ever get up and just openly rebuke somebody. 
I prefer rather to try to be kind and, and tactful, and I would more than likely bring correction through teaching the right thing at some point, and I would refute what they were teaching or saying by correcting it through the Word of God. And so we don't always get it right. <laughs> but when the Holy Spirit moves, He is unpredictable. We don't know how the Holy Spirit's going to move, and we shouldn't. He is in control of that. Second Corinthians chapter 12, we see that He manifests His gifts as He wills. Let's read it, verse 7. And the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. In other words, He's moving to profit everybody. For to one is given the spirit of the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same spirit. You'll notice that is a capital S, talking about the Holy Spirit. To another faith by the same Holy Spirit. To another the gifts of healing by the same Holy Spirit. To another the working of miracles, to pro prophecy, discerning of spirits, diverse kinds of tongues, and another interpretation of tongues. Verse 11 says, but all these work that one and the selfsame Spirit divides to every man severally as he wills. The Holy Spirit orchestrates those things. And we don't really know how the Spirit's going to work. The question then becomes, does the Spirit still work today like He did in the first century church? And that's a big question in Christianity, in the church world, because there's a lot of people that don't believe that the Holy Spirit works today like He did in the first church. To that, I simply point out I've done a tremendous amount of study on this because I didn't come from a full gospel, Pentecostal, charismatic, whatever background. I came from a mainline traditional denominational church that didn't believe in the moving of the gifts of the Spirit. And so when I experienced the touch of the Holy Spirit, I wanted to make sure that this was real. So I have done a lot of study on this. And one thing that really nailed it for me is when I looked at the attributes of God. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that He does not change. God does not change. And we have to remember that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. He is the part of God that God chose to leave here with us to teach us, to guide us, to comfort us, to empower us. And He is in charge, and He is also unchangeable. His function and His purpose does not change. He's not going to be one thing in the first century church and another thing in the 21st century church. He's the same. And so what he did in the first church, he still does today. He didn't change, and he has not changed. And he will not change until this age or this dispensation has come to an end. I believe when the rapture of the church is, when we're taken out of here, the Holy Spirit is coming with us. The Antichrist will then be in power on the earth. The Holy Spirit's going to back off and let him go at it. The only function he will have then, it will be different because it's a different age. He will then be dealing with the tribulation saints, mainly with the Jewish people. And that's another subject. I'm not going to get into all of that. But the point is the Holy Spirit's purpose and function will remain the same throughout the church age. 
So where do we see the first introduction of the Holy Spirit as he will function throughout the church age? We see it in Acts 1.8. And he says, but you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We then see that fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. Verse 1, it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully came, they were all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like a fire, and it set upon each of them. And they were all, everybody say all. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were, dwe they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men out of every nation under the heavens. And when they no this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because, I want you to get this, every man heard, everybody say they heard, every man heard them speak in their own language. And let me stop there just a minute. Because there's been a big debate about this over, over the centuries about what really did they speak that day. We know in the upper room they spoke in other tongues. We have no idea what that was. And people who say it was this or that simply don't know what they're talking about. On the day of Pentecost, what were they speaking? Because there was people there with multiple languages. Were they all speaking in the language that that person spoke? That would be utter chaos in my opinion. It's my firm conviction they spoke in their own native tongue the miracle took place. It was a linguistic miracle, in not in the speaking, but in the hearing. It would be like me preaching today, and you've got a, a Russian here, and a, and, and a, and a Latino here, and, and a, a Japanese person here, and a Chinese person there, and I'm speaking in English, but they're all understanding in their own language. Church, that's a miracle. The miracle took place because the Holy Spirit orchestrated this so that each man heard in his own language. We don't know what they spoke. So Pentecost is like, they're speaking in tongues. You can't prove that. You don't know that. And people are saying, well, they were speaking in every other dialect that was there. They, you can't prove that. You don't know that. So it just kind of irritates me a little bit that we, we nail a stake in the ground. It was this. When you just don't know. I'm happy just to know that they each heard in their own language. Wow, what a miracle. What a miracle. Now, with that said, there is a tongue that we don't understand. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, if a man speaks with both, or say both, the tongues of men and of angels, what does that tell me? The tongues of men is every known dialect on the earth. And there is another language that is an angelic language, a heavenly language. And he says, if you speak with both the tongues of men and angels and hath not love, you are a tinkling bass and a sounding cymbal. And that whole chapter is actually on the subject of love. You know, it's, it, it, actually chapter 12, 13, and 14 is all about the Holy Spirit. But in chapter 13, he's comparing the Holy Spirit and how it should function in comparison to love. When that which is perfect, talking about love being perfected, has come, that which is in part should be done away with. And, and people who are what are called cessationists, they believe that the gifts have ceased, they will take that one verse of Scripture and say the gifts have passed away. And I'm not going to get into that this morning, but Paul said, when I pray, my spirit 
praise, but my mind is unfruitful. He said, I don't understand what I'm praying. How, how be it in the spirit I speak mysteries. He also said, when a man prays in a tongue, no man understands what he says. For he speaks not to man, but to God. So there is a language in Scripture that is spoken that is not a human dialect. It's an angelic, a heavenly language. Paul, he also said, when tongues are used to address people, then there's a specific way that you should use that. In other words, if you're speaking in tongues in, in, a, in a way to address the body of Christ, he said, you only do that when you have an interpreter. And if you don't have an interpreter, then you don't do that because God is not the author of confusion. He said, then you just pray silently and to yourself. But he says, when you are praying, you're not praying to men. If somebody happens to hear you pray in tongues, occasionally I'll be praying and I'll pray in tongues, but I am not talking to you. So I am not going to in insist on having an interpreter because I'm not talking to you. You're just overhearing my prayer to God. And so in that case, there's not an interpreter needed. Paul also said that I speak in tongues more than all of you. He gives instructions on how the tongues are to be used in church, but at the end of it, he says, forbid not the speaking in tongues. You say, well, that was the first century church. But again, I make the point that the Holy Spirit is the same throughout the church age. So he says, back in Acts chapter 2, he says, every man heard in his own language, and there were all, they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, behold, are not all these that speak Galileans? How hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Pergia and Pamphylia and in Egypt and in Libya and in Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak with our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt saying one to another, what means this? Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said to them. Now, this is interesting to me because now Peter is addressing everybody, some of which speaks different language in their own tongue and where they were born, but everybody understands this one man speaking. Again, it's a miracle of the hearing, not necessarily speaking. So Peter stands up in the eleven, he lifts up his voice and says to them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, everybody that has come here today, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, seeing it is about the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Everybody say all flesh. You're in all flesh. Are you hearing me, church? And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Is prophecy passed away? No, not until heaven and earth passes away. It's not. Now, now with that said, let me clarify. There is no prophecy that supersedes the Word of God. It complements the Word of God. But there is nothing that supersedes the Word of God.
Verse 38, he skips down. He said, Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promises are to you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So this morning we're going to look at the purpose of Pentecost. I want to look at what it is and what it is not. <laughs> Amen. What it should not be. And we've got some problems in Pentecost. And so we're going to address that this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray today, Lord, that you would open our hearts to hear and to understand. God, I pray for everybody under the sound of my voice. And if there's people out there, God, and they've been taught different than this and maybe they disagree, God, I pray that you just give them a, an open mind to hear what the word of the Lord says. And then, God, they can go and be a... a, a a good student and study it for themselves just as I did, Lord, and come to their own conclusion. But, Lord, I pray that above all, your truth will be seen, heard, and known today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> so let me explain, explain, first of all, what Pentecost was about and what, what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Jesus told the disciples, he said, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with his Spirit not many days hence. All right, now at this point, Jesus has rose from the dead. He's died on the cross. He's been buried. He rose from the dead, and he has walked with the disciples for 40 days. He's getting ready to ascend, and 10 days from that, they're going to be in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit's going to fall upon them. So he tells them, you go into Jerusalem and tarry, and I'm going to pray to the Father, and he's going to send you the Holy Spirit. And the Bible said, and when he said these things, he breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Now, that's confusing to a lot of people. If they're going to get the Holy Spirit 10 days from now, what did they just get then? And what I come to understand when I studied this and searched it out, Jesus, who is God, by the way, come on, he is not a God, he is God. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, capital G-O-D. All things were made by him, Without him was not anything made that was made. Without any doubt, Jesus is almighty God. And the same thing he did in the Garden of Eden when he breathed into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life and he became a living soul, he just did for the second time in history. Man's soul died when he disobeyed God and ate of the tree. Man had a dead spirit throughout history up until this point. And when Jesus breathed on them for the second time in history, man became a living soul once again. What happened? They were born again at that point. They'd already been baptized symbolically of what was going to happen. So baptism doesn't save you. Let's be clear on that. It, it's a symbol that the old man has died and been buried with Christ and risen again. They were baptized before they were born again. Now he's breathed on them, and they become a living soul. But there's something else going to happen to them. Ten days from now, they're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we read it in Acts chapter 2 when they were in the upper, upper room. They were baptized in the Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues. All right? A lot of churches, the Assemblies of God being one of those, believes that the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Spirit is people speak in tongues. Now, I had a little bit of a struggle with that myself because I knew people that never professed to have ever spoken in tongues, 
but I would see in them the manifestation of the Spirit. They would have words of wisdom or words of knowledge. I've heard people prophesy, but they didn't claim to be Spirit baptized. They never prayed in tongues. And what I come to understand, and actually it came out in the, the Assembly of God magazine by somebody much higher up the rank than myself who clarified this and said, that is the initial physical evidence, but it's up to the believer whether they're going to speak or not. God baptizes you. He doesn't make you talk. That's up to you. He's the baptizer. You are the one who speaks. So the, the gift is there whether you speak or not. That's entirely up to you. All right? That is a physical evidence, and we see that, and the reason they say that is because that's what the Scripture says. doesn't matter what your experience tells you. It doesn't supersede what the book says, all right? And we see in Acts chapter 8, Philip has gone down. Philip is a deacon now. He's not one of the, uh, the 12. He's gone down uh, to Siberia, and he's preaching. If you remember, Philip's the one that he saw the eunuch and reading from the book of Isaiah, and he said, what are you reading? He said, I'm re reading Isaiah, and he baptizes him. Remember that? And he said, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? He baptized, and then Philip is caught up in the Spirit, and now he's found in Samaria. Well, he preaches to Samaria, and the whole city's coming to the Lord. Even a sorcerer named Simon, the sorcerer, who everybody thought he was some great one because he's kind of doing all these spiritual things that they think, he, that, that, ooh, he is powerful. He's got the Spirit. Even Simon, the sorcerer, believed and was baptized and began to follow Philip. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John that they may lay hands on them, that they may receive the Holy Spirit also. For he had fallen on none of them. They had only been baptized in water. So what does that tell us? They have been born-again, water-baptized believers up until the time that Peter and John came, but there was something else, and it's called the baptism of the Spirit. It is separate from the new birth experience and obviously subject to the new birth experience. Somebody's not going to be baptized in the Spirit if they're not born again, in other words. And so I, I, that settled it for me. Then we see in chapter 10 of the book of Acts, Paul, who was not one of the 12, in fact, he was a persecutor of the church. He arrested Christians, had them thrown in prison, stoned to death. Then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He went into Arabia for three years. He came back. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm talking. Paul's in chapter 15. It was Peter. Peter in chapter 10. He was on a rooftop, and he saw a vision let down from heaven. He said, a blanket let down in every creeping thing in, of the earth and four-footed beasts on it. And God said, arise, pillar, Peter, take, kill, and eat. Now, there's things on there that their dietary law will not allow them to eat. He said, every creeping thing. So there were some snakes on there or whatever. And Peter said, no, Lord, I have never eaten anything common or unclean. In other, th in other words, the things against our Jewish dietary laws. I've never eaten that. And God took it up. He said, what I have cleansed, don't you call it common. Meanwhile, Cornelius, who was an Italian, sent servants. God appeared to him in a vision and said, send servants to Simon a tanner that lives by the sea and inquire for one Simon Peter. 
So these men, Gentiles, are knocking on the door, and Peter comes down, and they said, Cornelius has sent you, come with us. And he realized what the vision was all about because the Gentiles of them was like something on the bottom of their shoe. You couldn't get lower than a Gentile to a Jew. They would never go into a Gentile's house. But Peter and other Jews with him went to the house of Cornelius. And in, in Acts chapter 10, it says, While he yet spake, the Holy Ghost fell on them because he heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then he said, Is any man forbid water that these could be baptized who have received the Holy Ghost like we have? Then you see in chapter 11 and chapter 15, the apostles are calling him on the carpet. It's like, you went into a Gentile's house? He's like, well, I saw this vision, and this happened, and that happened, and I went in, and while I was speaking, the Holy Ghost fell on them just like he did on us in the beginning. So what happened on the day of Pentecost? It happened in Samaria. Now it's happened in the house of Cornelius. And he reminds them again in chapter 15 of the same thing. And that's when the Apostle Paul is out there, and he's going around to the Gentiles saying, well, do we have to follow all the Jewish laws? Do we have to be circumcised? Do we observe all the holy days? Do we have to observe all the feasts and all that? And he said, I, I don't know. So he goes back to the council at, at Jerusalem, and Peter and John and Andrew and, and Bartholomew and Matthew and all those guys, he's like, they're asking me these questions. I don't know what to tell them. What do we do? And so they give him instructions on what to do. And then Peter stands up and says, well, you remember now, I was in the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, and God baptized them in the Spirit just like he did with us. So why are you going to put a yoke on the Gentiles that we ourselves cannot bear? And so they concluded, no, you don't have to keep all of those things. And they gave him a few instructions on what they should keep. But the point is this. The baptism of the Spirit, we see it repeatedly throughout the first century church. And then finally, Paul in chapter 19 is on, he, he's on the road to Ephesus, and he meets 12 of the disciples of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist taught repentance, looking forward to one that is coming. And Paul asks this interesting question. He says, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? They said, we haven't even heard of a Holy Ghost. What is that? They said, well, what were you baptized in? Paul says, what were you baptized in? He said, we were baptized in the baptism of John. He said, oh, okay, John the Baptist. He said, he baptized saying, look to the one that is coming after me. That is Jesus Christ. Then he preached Jesus to them. They received Christ. He water baptized them, and then he laid hands on them, and they were baptized in the Spirit, and they spoke in tongues, and there was 12 of them. So we see it over and over and over again. And then in the church of Corinth, he gives specific instruction how the Spirit is to operate in the modern-day church. So for that reason, I accept those things to be biblical and true and for today. And as a result, we are called Pentecostals. Now, Dr. Roden was here when we first planted the church, and he, he clarified something, and I appreciate the way he said that. He said, we're called Pentecostals, but somebody will ask me, are you a Pentecostal? He says, well, that just depends on what you mean by Pentecostal. Because Pentecostal has some pretty bad definitions in history. 
He said, if you mean that we run around like crazy people and we're rolling around the floor and we're handling rattlesnakes and swinging from chandeliers, and he said, no, we're not Pentecostal. If that's what you mean, no, we're not Pentecostal. But if you mean that what happened on the day of Pentecost still happens in the church today, then by that definition, yes, we are Pentecostal. So we're called Pentecostals. Now, out of all the things that Pentecostal has come to mean, the real purpose of Pentecost can be summed up in this one statement. You are going to receive power to be a witness unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. A witness, you say, well, what is that? A witness is someone that is empowered by the Holy Spirit to direct others to Christ through your words and actions, period. That's what a witness is. We are to be a witness of Jesus Christ, and he empowers you to do that so that you direct other people to him. We're not directing them to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit experience. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to direct people to Christ and to the saving part of God's plan. Now, some forms of Pentecost has come to mean something different than what God intended. God is seeking, he said, those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So then we have to ask, what does it mean to worship? To answer that, you just look at the men and the women in the Bible they were witnesses. What did they do? They worshiped. How did they worship? They served God in the power of the Spirit, and that was their witness. Servitude. Everybody say servitude. Being a servant. We are witness. We worship God by serving God. That's how you worship Him. Worship is not coming into a spiritually saturated, intense meeting and gathering of the body of Christ. You know, we had a great worship service. The Holy Spirit was there. I could feel the Spirit. What a worship service. That's a form of worship. But church, worship is not something you do. Worship is everything that you do. It's your lifestyle, and you're empowered by the Holy Spirit to live that life every day, endued with power by him, so that people see and hear Jesus in you. And then you serve them. Jim wrote a letter yesterday, and Joel read it, and what a, oh my gosh. And he was talking about two through this experience of his wife going through cancer and everything, all of the things that God did to lift him up and hold him up. And he said, people didn't realize it. Their name was this, but no, their name was Jesus. Jesus was in that. And this person did that, and that was Jesus. And this person did that, and that was Jesus. That's worship. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're empowered to do is to be Jesus to a lost and dying world. It's not about just feeling the Holy Spirit and, and all the things that Pentecost has sometimes come to mean. Don't ever limit your worship to a warm, fuzzy experience. 
Don't run after spiritual warm fuzzies, I call it. A drug addict will chase their first high. When a drug addict tries a drug and it's like, wow, they will spend the rest of their life taking that drug, trying to reach that utopia once again, and they will never reach it. Some Pentecostals spend their life chasing an experience and always trying to repeat their first experience with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to do a lot of reading here because these are my memoirs from years of study and research, all right? So forgive me if you see me reading a lot of this. They are not faithful to their call or their gift. What is that? You're, what is your call? What is your gift? To be a witness by serving others. They only seem faithful to pursue the spiritual high. Now, when we parallel that comparison, the traditional mainstream believers, that's the background that I come from, on the other hand, they seem to be faithful to a system, to an order, to a type or set of religious practices. And, and, and listen, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Obeying the Word of God as a rule, as a, as a practice, as a habit, as a, a discipline is a good thing. But they're doing this in their own ability, in their own strength. Traditional Christians tend to be very faithful in their practice. However, they often, it's often done in their strength and their ability. And, and listen, if you're getting it done, and you're strong enough, you got enough gifts, you got enough ability to do it in your own power, praise God, it's getting done. My issue is this. Why am I going to push the car when all I got to do is get, to, get the key and, and fire up that 350 and, and listen to a roar, baby, and put that thing in gear and let it go under its own power? That's why the Holy Ghost came, so you don't have to do it in your power. You don't have to have the charisma. That's why God can take an ignorant mountain boy and he can get in the pulpit and preach under the power of the Spirit because I couldn't do this without God. It's his power. I'm nothing without him. Ignorant mountain boy. The Pentecostals seem to rely more on the Spirit to empower them, while the traditional church seems to do more things in their own strength. But therein lies the problem. The Holy Spirit doesn't repeat their original encounter over and over again. And if he doesn't, then for some reason Pentecostals lose their commitment. So they stop serving. Why? They're afraid that somehow they're going to be doing things in their own power, and they never want to do that. They always want to do things in the power of the Spirit. And if I'm doing it in my own power, then God's not in it. Listen, God is in it. If he's, if, if he's giving you a command and you're doing it, whether God is helping you or not, it's getting done. That God's in that. Obedience is better than sacrifice. You'll never go wrong obeying God. So they stop serving for fear that they are somehow working on their own power, so they set out on a journey to find the power again. Their concept of faithfulness then is, if the Holy Spirit doesn't fill me, I will do nothing. Because I don't want to do it in my own power. I want to make sure I'm doing it in the power of the Spirit. So if he doesn't fill me, 
I'm not doing a thing. The problem then is Pentecostals seem to equate the power of the Spirit to a feeling, to an experience that is likened to their first encounter. So seemingly they subscribe, they, they, they subconsciously conclude if nothing is felt, then the power must not be present. Why? Because you should feel the Spirit. Now listen, church, you can feel the Spirit. I feel the Spirit all the time. But that doesn't mean that he's not here if I don't feel him. I requested that last song. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Not about what you see. It's not about what you feel. Many times the power and the presence of the Spirit is with you when you don't feel a thing. Why? He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Where you go, I'll go with you. Come on. And I'm going to tell you, church, there's times I have to remind myself of that because I don't feel a blasted thing. There's been times I'm like, God, are you even real? Huh? Come on now, be real. Where are you, God? Well, it's easier when you feel the Spirit. Uh, amen. Brother, when all you're feeling is all hell breaking loose against you, it's like, oh, my gosh, what? Huh? But, I mean, look here. Look at, look at the apostles and what they went through. I'm sure Paul, he's, he's beaten with rods. He was stoned to death. God raised him from the dead. He was in a shipwreck in the sea, and he was hungry. He was fasting. It was cold. I'm pretty sure he was like, oh, I feel the Spirit. <laughs> no, I'm thinking he's probably saying, hey, Lord, where are you? But even when I don't feel it, I'm going to worship you. Worshiping them in a Philippian jail at midnight. And God showed up. So Pentecostals, the re results becomes a believer that always waits on a feeling. Waiting for the next spiritual warm fuzzy to motivate them, to inspire them, to empower them, to move them. And if that fails to happen, then nothing else happens. When asked to serve, they're like, I'm waiting on the Spirit. And that is what usually happens. They wait and wait and wait and wait. When I was in Bible college, I had this necklace, the leather necklace, and I got me a, a lead, lead fishing weight, and I tied, tied it on there, put it on my shirt. I'd say, well, because I was put in charge of some things as part of my Bible college, I had to, I was over cleaning the building, actually. I'm like, I need you to do this. I don't feel lead, brother. I said, oh, I can fix that. If, if lead's all you need to feel right here, some lead, feel it. <laughs> lead fishing weight. You feel it all you want to. Now, go sweep the floor. <laughs> Amen. Come on, somebody. We can fix that right now. You want to feel lead. You see, the Holy Spirit has already spoken on most every subject that is being asked of us. <clears throat> he did it in something, <clears throat> he did it in something called the Bible. We don't have to feel a thing. We just have to get in there and see what he told us to do. The traditional church does that. They do it in their own strength, but praise God, they're doing it. They're doing it. We have the instructions, but the Pentecostal many times seems to think that he must have a confirmation by the spiritual warm, fuzzy feeling. 
or it's not in his place to act on it. So he waits and waits for a feeling or something to happen. And if nothing happens, that's usually what happens. Nothing. Now, when I was studying and writing all this down, I was sorting out my thoughts and what I was observing and what I was seeing because I was looking at the servitude of the non-Pentecostal churches and how hard they worked and how hard they served other people. I'm like, That's a, that is exemplary of Jesus. And I'm looking at the Pentecostal church that's got the power and miraculous things and healing and this and that and all, but they're not serving like that. And I'm like, there is something wrong here. And so this is what I wrote. I've spent extensive time in both Pentecostal and non-Pentecostal churches. The traditional believer seems to depend almost entirely on their natural ability to serve through dedication, commitment, knowledge, training, willpower, personality, charisma. But they trust almost entirely on the arm of the flesh and have little real knowledge or understanding or a sense of the Holy Spirit's presence, his involvement, his gifts, or his anointing. They really don't understand all of that. You start talking. Listen, when I first went into a Pentecostal church, I'm like, whoa. That is strange. Huh? My wife and I worked with a Pentecostal man, and he, this man really, really impacted my life. His name was Junior Fulmer, and he was a man's man. He said they used to, he lived in Wagner, South Carolina. He said they used to meet on the bridge with the neighboring town, all the boys, and they would get in fistfights on the bridge. They would always go get Junior because he'd whip four or five of them by himself, you know. Well, he was my fitter. I was his helper, pipe fitter. And he'd tell me every day without fail, he said, Bernie, it behooves a man to seek God. I didn't know what behoove meant, but I knew it was good. Well, I went to his church. It was a little cinder block church way out in the country, and it was an old line Pentecostal holiness church, and there were some women in there that had them little buns, you know, and the dress outward holiness. I'm not mocking. The, don't get me wrong. I'm not mocking that. They believe that you should be dressed modest and holy, and they believe that. I, I can correct that, but I, that's not what I'm here for, and I'm not here to judge them or mock that. I'm just telling you what I experienced, okay? I'm not judging them or, crit or criticizing that. I'm not criticizing that. But I, here, I'm a little Baptist boy, and I'm sitting over there, and all of a sudden, they're, they're in church singing. They're going, I'm like, something wrong with that woman over there. <laughs> She's jerking. You know, I'm like, what is that? I remember the first time I went to Orange, South Carolina, somebody spoke out loud in tongues. I'm like, some Spanish guy didn't come up in here. <laughs> and then some guy interprets, you know. I'm like, I learned later on, he, that's praying in the spirit and interpretation, you know. And it was, it was biblical. I looked at it. They did it exactly the way the Scripture said to do it. I'm like, well, that is just strange, man. Come on. But when I observe all of that, I, I, I see that there's, there needs to be a, a blending of these two. So the people in the traditional church, they do these things, and, and they're, they're, they, they don't have a sense of the Holy Spirit's presence or involvement or gifting or anointing. The Pentecostals, on the other hand, they have a keen sense and knowledge of the Holy Spirit's presence and involvement. But with that knowledge, they often depend entirely on the Holy Spirit to do everything. 
and they are far less likely to be dedicated and committed. Why? They think it's doing things in your flesh and not doing it in the spirit. It is as, as if they think, I'm going to wait for the spirit to move me. And as a result, it has been my experience that the traditional believers seem to be much more engaged in Christian service, which we're commanded to do, while the Pentecostal is much more engaged in the pursuit of personal experience. The traditional believer then spends more time serving others, while Pentecostal spend more time seeking something for himself. The next touch, the next encounter, the next warm, fuzzy feeling, the next revival, the next outpouring. It's all about what I'm going to get, what I'm going to feel, what I'm going to experience. It's not about what I'm going to do for you. It's about what God can do for me. Are you hearing me, church? I'm talking about us now. I'm not saying necessarily the church. I'm saying us Pentecostals in, in general. And don't get me wrong, all those things are great. And August the 16th, 1974, at a Baptist retreat of all places in Mechanicsville, Virginia, I received a powerful touch by the Holy Spirit that transformed my life forever. It was powerful. But I don't seek that again and again. I, I have, and then I realize that that's not what God's called me to do. I have walked and served God in the power of the Spirit for 47 years since that experience. But what I learned is as I walk in that power and obedience, you've got to blend the two. Are you hearing me, church? It's a blending of the two. When I walk in the power of the Spirit and the obedience, God has given me a touch or the touch if and when I needed it. Because sometimes you don't need it. Sometimes you've got to just be out there in the desert and just trust God. And he's not going to show up. Timmy's going to be bringing the word next week about a tree. It puts its roots down in the dry times. A tree that grows on top of a hill by itself, it has to put roots down deeper because it has to stand against the wind. You take a tree out of the middle of the forest and the wind come up, you cut all the trees down around it and it'll blow over because it has no roots in it. So sometimes God will leave you in a dry place and you don't feel a doggone thing. And he does that on purpose to teach you, to help you grow. And when you do need a touch, he will give it to you. I don't chase warm, fuzzy feelings because if they don't come, then you ask, well, what's wrong? God must not be in this. I must have missed God. I'm doing this in, instead of God doing it. I'm doing it in my own strength. And on and on and on, the doubts will arise if it's always based on a feeling. God didn't call me to serve myself by chasing a feeling, seeking an experience, seeking the power, trying to get the first high again and again and again. No, he called me to serve others by empowering me with the Holy Spirit to be his witness to them. And what's true about me, church, is true about all of us. In my observation, I have concluded this belief. Because I observe this. I'm, I'm, like, I'm seeing the traditional churches, and they're working so hard. They're being Jesus, serving people. And Pentecostals, it's just the power. It's like, woohoo! And, and I mean, you get in some of their services, like, wow, you see amazing, miraculous things. But they don't do anything for anybody. I mean, other than that, I mean, they're not really serving people like 
And I'm like, there, somehow, we, if we can make the connection, my word in heaven, huh? So this is my observation. I believe that if we could see the value of both the involvement and dependency and leading of the Holy Spirit, as well as the de dedication, the commitment, the knowledge, the training, the willpower, the personality, the charisma that comes from within the individual and he or her's own natural ability, and that we work to build and develop those characteristics by hard work on the part of the individual. The Holy Spirit's not doing this. I'm working on this. I'm do developing this through my own strength and my own ability, while at the same time depending on the leading of the Holy Spirit and the, and the involvement of the Holy Spirit. Then we would be a more complete biblical believer. The power of the Spirit is what makes us more effective in service, and we should seek the power, but not for my own benefit, not, if I, not so I can get a touch, hallelujah, I can feel the glory, so I feel like I must be special, not so I can feel the affirmation that everything must be okay with God, or God must be pleased with me, or I've got, the, I've got this feeling, God touch me. So hallelujah, I feel the power. Because too many Pentecostals are hooked on a feeling. We should seek the power to serve other people. Are you with me? Say amen. All right, I'm going to wrap this up here. Now, <laughs> we are Pentecostal by definition. All right, we believe that what happened on the day of Pentecost still happened. I believe that. But I'm going to take a, 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 just a shot in the dark here, or a shot in the light, how about that? <laughs> that not everybody sitting here has experienced the baptism of the Spirit. All right? Not everybody has. What if you are not Spirit baptized? Do you have to be Spirit baptized, power-filled believer, to pray for others like we did up here last week? You see, last week before service, Brother Dan said, Gloria wants the elders to come and pray for her. That's biblical. If they're sick among you, let them call the elders of the church. The elders will come together. They will anoint them with oil. They lay hands on them, and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Every word of that. You don't have to be spirit-filled to read that and say, that's what we're called to do. It doesn't take a spirit-filled believer to do that. It's obeying the Scripture. And so she came up. We prayed for her. And the Holy Spirit just began to move, and other people came up, and we prayed for them. And some people are sitting there, and you're like, wow. Because I had some people comment. It's like, man, the presence of God. I, one guy, he texted me. He's like, I could just sense God's presence. I could just feel God's presence in the sanctuary while y'all were praying and this and that. Do you have to be spirit-filled to do that? Do you have to be spirit-filled to get results from that? Well, let's answer that question. This is one other thing that I would like to address today about the misconception of Pentecostal power and how it's used today. Because I once read a book by a Pentecostal power that's, pastor that said this, if signs and wonders are not following your ministry, you are not in the will of God. And he cited Mark chapter 16, verse 15 and 18. 
And it says, Mark 16, verse 15, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name. Everybody say that with me. In my name. What is the sign being talked about here? We have to be careful with this. His name. They shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Now, that's the verse he cited, chapter. If that's not happening, you're not in the will of God. And let me clarify one thing before I get too carried away here. That word serpent doesn't mean a reptile, just so we're clear on that subject. You come in here with a rattlesnake, we're going to show you the door. You better have that thing's head cut off. <laughs> the, word, the Greek word there is aphis, and it means a spiritual entity or power. If it meant reptile, it would have been the Greek word herpeton. It's used in the book of James. It's not a literal reptile. It's a spiritual power. You'll take authority over spiritual powers is what it's talking about. Anyway, so I, I read his book, and I, when I saw that, I'm like, just wait a minute now. I see, I've been around this for a while now, and I've seen this before. So let me get this straight. What you're saying, what this man is saying is if the signs and wonders are there, then that is the proof positive that God is in it and that you are the real deal because God has signed off on you, and he signed off on your ministry. You got the proof, signs and wonders. But there has to be signs and wonders. So then I'm like, okay, so what you're telling me then is that you walk by sight and not by faith. I got a problem with that. Because Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. In fact, Hebrews 11 says this, faith is the subject of things that we hope for. And it's the evidence of things not seen. And by that faith, the elders obtained a good report. Before they ever saw it, they operated it. And God was in it. God signed off on it before anything ever happened. The Word of God, my friend, is true no matter what the results you see or don't see. We don't obey God and say, well, God, now you have to perform. Because there, there's a movement that does that. And, and I've heard him, and you talk about backing away from somebody. It's like, this is God's word, and we're holding him to it. God wrote this, and it's a promise from him, and he is not a man that he might lie, so he said he's going to do it. And God, I'm commanding you to do this, or you're a liar. I'm like, whoa, that bolt of lightning might just be strong enough to kill us both, so I'm moving over here. Church, we need to be clear on one thing about all of this. God is sovereign, and you don't tell God what to do. He does what he chooses to do because he is God. And we, we, uphold, we come boldly before his throne to make our request known unto him. You don't order God around. 
But some people are like, God's got to perform signs and wonders because he said he would. No, God said to pray. Call them up, anoint them with oil, lay your hands on them, and pray for them. I've done what he told me to do. Whether you're spirit-filled or not, you've done what he told you to do. The results is up to him. If he says yes, it's got nothing to do with you other than you obeyed the word. If he says no, it's got nothing to do with you. You did what he told you to do. That's all you got to do. That's all you're supposed to do. You don't need to do anything else. The results is not up to you. I don't, listen, I had to learn I don't have to explain God and I don't have to defend God. I simply does what, do what he tells me to do and the results is up to him. If he says yes, to God be the glory. If he says no, to God be the glory. If he says wait, to God be the glory. I just do what he says. So we obey, we pray, we anoint with oil, we lay hands on, we speak words of faith. And everything else that he has commanded us to do, we do, and the rest of it is all up to God. Now, just because we see results, that is not proof positive that you or I am the real deal. Just because we see results, that doesn't mean you and I, we, we, God is with us, that's the real deal. Because signs and wonders is not the proof that you're God's man. How do I know that? Last scripture, I want you to look at this with me. I've got two more scriptures and I'm going to close. Are you still with me? Say amen. Matthew 7, verse 15, he says, beware of false prophets. Now, what's the subject here? False prophets, okay? That continues throughout this. Keep that in mind. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing. They look like a Christian. They talk like a Christian. They act like a Christian. But inwardly, they are ravaging wolves. You shall know them by their fruit. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, eat good trees bring forth good fruit. All right, come on. If, you got, if you're really a born-again child of God, you're going to bring forth good fruit. All right. And a corrupt tree brings forth corrupt fruit. Verse 19, every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewed down and cast into the fire. In other words, a false prophet, he can sound like the greatest man of God that's ever walked in the church. He's going to hell. That's what that's saying. It's cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruit you shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, he's continuing on this subject of being a false prophet. Now, keep that in mind. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. A good tree. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Look this way and listen. They didn't try to prophesy. They prophesied in your name. We have cast out devils in your name. You've got to catch this now. They didn't try to cast a demon out. They're invoking the name of Jesus, a false prophet now, and the demon is coming out. Because a lot of people, as believers, are like, I would never try to cast out a demon because they're going to see all this stuff in my life and they're going to respond to me. They're going to rebuke me like they did the seven sons of Sceva. No, when they invoked the name of Jesus, the demons came out. That's what he's saying. We've cast out demons in your name. And we've done many mighty works 
in your name. In other words, the signs and the wonders were there. And I will say, and, and I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Church, when the name of Jesus is invoked, any power and all power is in his name. It's not in the person, spirit-filled or not. It's in the name of Jesus. So whether it is invoked by the Holy Spirit-filled believer or even a false prophet, the power is in the name of Jesus. Signs and wonders are seen, but it's all about Jesus, and it doesn't prove anything except the greatness and goodness of God. You know how I know that? In 1986, 87, somewhere around in there, how many of you remember a, a, an evangelist, a pastor, whatever, named Jimmy Swagger? Who knows what I'm talking about? I, I was a big, I would follow him. He, at the time, was going to South America, and thousands of people were coming to Christ. And I'm watching him like, oh, what an anointing, what an anointing, what an anointing. The whole time, he was going back to Baton Rouge and sleeping with prostitutes. I remember him blubbering on, he's sorry, because he got caught. And I could really talk about some of that because I, I followed. I, at the time, I was going through the credentialing process for the Assemblies of God, and I had just studied about if a man in the Assemblies of God does something like that, the restoration process that they have set in place not to correct him but to restore him. At the time, my wife and I was supporting his ministry financially. And I said to her, I said, if he will go through the Assemblies of God correction process to be restored, I will continue to support his ministry. Because I believe in grace and mercy. But he didn't. He pulled out, and his son, I heard his son say this, that God did that to get him out of a denomination that was in error. God did that. Had him sleep with prostitutes. I'm like, I don't want to be you on the day of judgment, friend. I'm nobody's judge, but that you could not be more wrong than that. But this is the point. I'm saying, God, how could a false prophet like that, sleeping with prostitutes, carry such an anointing? Remember, I asked you, could you come and pray for people? If you're not spirit-filled with his power and everything is hunky-dory and see signs and wonders. No. We were seeing signs and wonders by a man sleeping with prostitutes. I'm like, God, how could a man do that and carry that anointing? And this is what, they got, what God spoke to my heart. He said, Bernie, the anointing wasn't on him. It's not on you. It's not on you or you or you or you or you or you. The anointing is was, always will be on his word. In the name of Jesus. It's not about you. It's never about you. It's never going to be about you. In the name of Jesus, they did this. In the name of Jesus, they did that. In the name of Jesus, they do this. It's all about him. He said this in Isaiah chapter 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, it will not return unto me void, 
but it will accomplish that which I please, and it will prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Now, he can send it through a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered believer, or he can send it through a false prophet, but it's still his word, and the power is in his word. It's in him. It's not in this guy, and it's not in that guy. So whether it's a traditional believer that's out here doing everything in the arm of the flesh or a spirit-filled, woo-hoo, Pentecostal, it's not about any of them, church. It's never been about them. It's all about Jesus. Are you hearing me? And if we can get a hold of that, brother, we can just go out and just obey him and, God, I did what you told me to do. Now, I think God loves to show off for his children. Now, God, just do it. Not to prove that I've got the goods and, woo, Pastor B, woo, hallelujah. No, I think God will use people you've never heard of. And the reason I believe that, I'm going to close the description. Why don't you stand as I'm reading this? We pray, and if God says yes, then praise God. But don't ever lift a person. It's never about them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says this, For you see your calling, brother, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, and you could add that according to the flesh, not many noble, according to the flesh, are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world, that's the Greek word agenes, and it means the ignoble or low birth, the nobodies, the nothings. He has chosen the base things, the nothings of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen in the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Verse 29 nails it, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, of him, that's a capital H, talking about God, of God you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom, Jesus is our wisdom. Who became for us righteousness? Jesus is our righteousness. Who became for us sanctification? Jesus is our sanctification. Who for us became our redemption? Jesus is our redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Pentecostals, Get the power. Why push the car when you can fire that baby up and put her in gear, brother, and let her go under her own power? And if you're a traditional and you want to push the car, thank God the car's moving. Push. I applaud you, man. You're dedicated, you're committed, you're doing what a lot of Pentecostals needs to do, moving the car. But a lot of people's waiting for it to fire up on its own. I'm looking for the power. And the car's just sitting there, and they're waiting. It's not going anywhere. It's never going to go anywhere because they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to do it, to fire itself up. No. We got to get in there and do our part. Does that make sense to anybody other than me? Praise God. Maybe there's some knuckleheads in here like me then. If it makes sense to me, I guess it makes sense to us all. Praise God. God, we love you. 
Lord, we thank you for the power of the Spirit. Hallelujah. What would we do without it, Lord? We'd be pushing, I guess. God, I pray for my brethren, Lord, that maybe they don't understand that or maybe they just don't even believe it, Lord. Touch them with the power of your Spirit. God, we prayed before we ever planted this church for three solid years for you to pour out your Spirit in all the churches in the Central Virginia area. God, I pray that you pour out your Spirit everywhere. I believe the day's coming, God, that you will pour out your Spirit in the latter rain movement that will be even greater than the former rain, Lord. Your word says that. I don't know how that's all going to unfold, and I don't want to speak to things that I don't really understand, but I know you're going to do it because your word said you will, Lord. And I, too, I'd love to be around to see that, God. And, um, but I don't have to, Lord. I trust you, God, whether I ever see those things or not. Because you said so, God, and that's all. That's good enough for me. You said it, and that's, that settles it. So, Lord, I pray that you would just speak to us today, God, and, and I, I hope today, God, and I pray that the things that I have said, God, it builds faith in the hearts of your people to step out and not say, well, Pastor B's got to do that or so-and-so. I can never do that. God, show them, Lord. They can because it's not about them either. The name of Jesus is the same for them as it is for me or anybody else. So use us, God, we pray. Lord, I pray that you help us to combine together the working of the Spirit, the dependency on the Spirit with what we can do, God. And Lord, I, I pray that we would all commit to do what we can do, Lord. And then, God, just to trust you to do what we cannot do, what only you can do. And then, God, we will see mighty works done, Father, for those that we are called to serve, Lord. Help us to be servants, God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hunter, take us to the throne, brother. song in just a minute, but I just feel prompted of the Lord to do something. Is there anybody in here that you're going through something or maybe somebody that you have on your heart, but you need prayer, and you, you want somebody to come in agreement with you in prayer, what I'd like for you to do is just slip up your hand and just hold your hand up for just a minute. Just keep it up if you would, please. All right? Keep your hand up there. Anybody else? All right, if you're standing close to the people that's got their hand up, 
if it's okay, ask them if they don't mind you touching them. All right? Don't just go up and go groping all over people. We don't do that. But say, is it okay if I lay my hand on you and just lay your hand on their shoulder or something? But if, you, if that's okay, just go up and lay your hand on them. And I want you, listen, I'm not going, the elders are not going to pray because I want to show you something. In the name of Jesus, God's going to use you. That's what we've been talking about this morning. And I just believe God's going to do some miraculous things right now through you praying for each other, being exactly what we've talked about this morning, because God's faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Hallelujah, Jesus.